Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the That Hedge Trimmer is Armed and Dangerous edition. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with someone halfway around the world about a book that unfolds across far greater distances, light years in fact, and involves different human civilizations in conflict over what it means to be human. John Birmingham is a prolific author of 31 books, and he is a journalist. He has written alternate histories, a book of writing advice, opinion columns, and his first book, He Died with a Falafel in His Hands, was adapted into the longest-running stage play in Australian history. But today we're not talking about falafel. We're talking about his latest science fiction novel, a tightly-paced, suspenseful, and bitingly funny space opera full of Wild tech, tongue-twisting insults, and five distinctly drawn and diverse characters. The book is The Cruel Stars, and I'm very happy to welcome John to the show. Thanks, Rob. I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be here, mate. Well, how are things in uh, Brisbane, uh, I guess, tonight or this it evening is, for it you? Is, it is this evening where I am. It is, uh, it's not too late. It's a bit after 10 here, so... Um, uh, we're just coming up on on summer, so it's it's nice and warm. I'm just getting to that um, part of the year where I can start leaving doors and windows open all night, and the dogs take to sleeping on the the front veranda, and um, it's good. It's uh, it's one of my favourite times of year. Well, it sounds lovely. It's still warm here in New York, and just for reference, it's Tuesday morning here in New York. So, are you still stuck in Monday? Or are you about to dive into Wednesday? No, no, we live in the future. Um, so, I am coming up fast on Wednesday. In fact, I have to um, have to get up early tomorrow morning and catch the first flight out. I'm, I'm flying down the national capital, where I'm going to see John Scalzi, who is in Australia for a couple of days at the um, the same seminar that I'm I'm going to be at. So that's that's kind of exciting because I'm reading or actually listening to his uh, his series he's um, he's got going on at the moment, and I love it. So I'm looking forward to you know gushing all over him. Excellent, excellent. So is this your first space opera? It, it is. I've I've read plenty of them. I'm a, a huge fan of the the genre. Um, but it took me a while to get the, um, partly to get the confidence to, to write my own and also for the moment to be right, you know, as you you know, trends come and go in, in genre fiction. And, uh, when we, um, when I sat down with my agent Russ a couple of years ago to have a chat about what we might do next, we were sort of, you know, having a bit of a sci-fi moment. I said, I, I think it might be time, mate. And, and he agreed. So I was, I've was i always been a huge fan of the big multi-threaded um, 
epics of, of space opera, the kind of thing that Peter F. Hamilton does. And uh, that was that was definitely the um, the style of thing I, I wanted to do. Well, when you're writing about a clash of civilizations and it's set a gazillion light years away, you could just make up every little detail. Yeah, yeah you could. I, I was talking to... Um, I was talking to a friend the other day about this book. I'd, I'd given him a copy and, and he'd read it. He's not a sci-fi uh, reader, but he, he quite enjoyed it. And he was asking about the process and how difficult it was compared to writing a conventional novel. And I said, look, the first the first hundred pages of these books, particularly if you don't, you know, if like me, you are coming to it later in your career, it, it's, kind of, um, it's kind of difficult because everything uh, – everything is open to question, like you know, how do you open a door in the future? Um, you know, that sounds like that, you know, that sounds like it's a, a facile query in some ways, but it, it, it's not like, you know, 10 years from now, I can imagine if you're checking into a hotel, um, you know, you'll just wave whatever smartwatch you're wearing and you'll click yourself into the room. Like you project that 500 years forward and, and what does something as banal as moving between two rooms look like? And I found myself constantly stopping and, and asking these questions over and over again. Did you walk around with a notebook? Because I can imagine little ideas popping into your head as you're doing the ordinary business of daily life, uh, thinking of that question. Well, yeah. now how would I open this can 500 years in the future? Or would I even eat out of a can? That's right. Would there be cans? Would they have food? Um, yeah, I, I do. I, I just, I, I'm general, like everybody nowadays, I'm, I'm attached to my phone. And um, I have a, uh, a couple of apps that I, I work into. And if uh, a thought occurs to me, you know, something as simple as what does nutrition look like 500 years from now? Or um, you, you mentioned before that there was some some interesting insults in the book from from one of the characters and, and occasionally one would pop into my head and if I don't put that down immediately, uh, I will forget it and it'll just drive me nuts. And so for the first, I don't know, maybe three to six months when I'm sort of trying to find my way into a project, a bit like a caver working his or her way into a, a subterranean system, I will constantly lay down uh, breadcrumbs like you know notes and you know, scraps of paper to myself and and at the end of the the day I, I gather them all together and put them into a document and, and usually then at the end of the week I have a look at that document and think you know is there anything that actually I could use sometimes there is not always and I did feel like you'd also done research even though it's set very far into the future and maybe it's a reflection of research you've done for other books but there was very precise thinking, I thought, about military language and concepts and nautical terms and weapons and quantum mechanics. So I wondered if you had, in fact, done some research. Yeah, I, I, did, um, I did quite a bit of research on quantum mechanics about, uh, oh man, it's, it's like 18 or 19 years ago now when I was um, writing my first real alternate history, Weapons of Choice, which starts off with a MacGuffin of a, uh, effectively a time machine going wrong. And I think for that, um, I'm actually looking at my bookshelf now, seeing if I've still got, I, I do, I'm actually looking at the book now that I, I, I read it about five or six times. It was a book by a physicist called How to Build a Time Machine. I read that thing 
I don't know, six or seven times and um, because I'm not very smart, <laughs> truth be known. It took me about five or six to understand it. And, yeah, there was there was a fair bit of that that, that stayed with me. But to specifically address the question you were asking, things about military norms and cultures, yeah. I, um, I once, well, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I, I worked for our defence department and I was in this weird position of being a civilian working within the military. Like I was basically the only person in civvies in this section that I was I was working in. I, and I found the sort of, I found military culture fascinating. Like it was nothing that I would ever want to be involved in myself because I'm, you know, uh, I'm kind of a freak for personal agency. But I, I, I found the, the world in which you know, these men and, and, and women lived to be so far removed from, you know, the world of normal things and you know, the places that you and I live, that it, it that the fascination with it stayed me forever. And so when I sat down to, to write this book, again, something as simple as, you know, how do you move from one room to another gave rise to questions like, how do you step onto a ship in the far future? And so, I, I, you know, I can recall there was a couple of days where I actually spent some time reading, you know, guides for young officers and, and young seamen and, and, and sea women who've, say, just joined the US Navy or the Australian Navy or the British Navy about how to behave when you, you join a ship. And that, the, that first chapter where Lucinda steps onto the Defiant was very much a, a product of all that research. Let's talk about the Sturm. They set the main conflict of the book in motion. So who are they and what do they want? Um, they don't like being called the Sturm, for one thing, um, which is why I, I called them that. They like to think of themselves as true humans or the human republic. But they're, they, they're called the Sturm because the guy who set them up, his, his name was Sturm. Uh, they are species purists. And in the context of the book, they're, they're basically space Nazis who fought a war for genetic purity five or six hundred years in the past and lost and were exiled. So the, the, the Sturm's particular kink is biomodification. They, they hate it. They can't stand it. They can't stand any kind of gene modding or bioengineering at all. And they regard anybody who's done that or, or had that done to them as inhuman, as not human and, and, and as a threat to what they regard as humanity and consider that they need to be wiped out. Now, they, they look like conventional Nazis in when you meet them. And yet the, the interesting thing about the, the human space or the human volume that they're attacking is that although there are billions of people with these modifications, they all tend to be, you know, very rich and very powerful, but there are trillions of, of other people who just aren't, aren't rich and aren't powerful enough to get, you know, cancer gene modded away or, you know, have their memories uploaded into a sort of universal substrate so that they can effectively live forever. And the Sturm very much see themselves as, as liberating those oppressed masses from the control of, of inhuman 
bots and and freaks and so they, they are fascists as they were I, I very much based them on the the rise of the the alt-right which was coming to scary prominence as i was first putting this book together but in a way they're you know the the system against which they set themselves isn't particularly pretty either yeah, I wanted to actually ask about that. But before I do, do you think we could talk a little bit about what happens early in the story? Yeah. Something dramatic and, and rather shocking, and it happens all across the human space. It's really the Sturm's return. It's a surprise assault. Yeah, I, I think one of them cites, well, there's a Japanese term for it, and I'll inevitably get it wrong, so I, I apologize to anybody listening who just, you know, bristles at this, but in the, the, the Second World War, the Imperial Japanese military had a term for, it was it was like the German term for Blitzkrieg, but theirs was, um, it was like critical strikes, it was Kassen Kantai or Kantai Kesson or something like that, and that, that's that's what the Sturm perform in the the opening chapters of this book is a, a critical strike and they they use one of the the things which links this sort of vast sprawling human volume together which is instantaneous communications via wormhole because one of the things if you're writing a book set in the far future and you, you want to like spread it across a couple of star systems you are inevitably stuck with whether or not you obey the laws of physics or not and um, if you do, then you, you're stuck with a forever war scenario where whenever you send somebody out into the stars, by the time they come back, it's hundreds of years later. Or you can just hand wave all of that away with technology that collapses time and distance. And so uh, in the universe of the cruel stars, time and distance has been collapsed by uh, wormhole communications. But the the... The tweak to it, I guess, is that although information can transit instantaneously from one side of the, the galaxy to the other, matter, atoms, are still left travelling by the you know relatively slow speed of FTL. So you can get a message to Earth from the edge of the galaxy instantly, but if you want to send a starship to invade, it's going to take you a couple of years to get there. And the Sturm used this in their critical strike to effectively subvert the networks which tie everything together and to which the the elite members of this society are constantly plugged in and constantly backing themselves up. They use that to basically perform a decapitation strike on that society. And they insert malware basically into... Yeah. Into the malware across the network and into the grey matter of billions and billions of human beings, and these human beings, you know, happen to be the ones that control that society. So it's uh, both a literal and, and figurative decapitation strike. And I thought it was interesting. Basically, it makes them all go nuts and start attacking each other. Yeah, not just nuts. So it turns them into ravening space zombies. But, um, I, I do love a good zombie story, and although it, it's not a sort of you know defining element of the the cruel stars i i wanted to get you know at least one or two in there it almost makes the, the sturm's point to some extent not that i'm taking the side of these space nazis at all but they are taking advantage of the fact that the people who go berserk in this way have been modified and that's the reason they can do this to them so that's right in a way it it underscores at least the vulnerability of being 
a modified human, a human with this kind of mesh in your brain. And one characteristic of the people who have this is that they no longer need to really learn anything because they can instantly download all knowledge and skills that they need in the moment when they need it. Yeah, that's right. And it's, uh, it's, it's funny, just before you, um, you got in contact with me, I was watching one of the, the Matrix movies, just killing a bit of time. I, I don't know about you, but I, I now find that there is, there is such a vast infinitude of, of you know, audiovisual entertainment available. I often get struck with option paralysis and I just default back to whatever I was watching 20 years ago. And so I ended up watching, I think it was the second Matrix. And that idea where, say, I think it's essentially in the first of the, the Matrix movies where Neo gets a bunch of martial arts programs dropped into his head and you know, Keanu Reeves, it's quite a famous line, he says, oh, whoa, I know jujitsu. I, I, I really liked that idea as a, as a trope. And you can see the Wachowskis use it again and again. They used it in um, their Netflix series, Sensate. They just, the way they operationalized it was, was different, but the concept was the same. The idea of gaining instant knowledge and, and power by you know, either downloading or, or uploading that knowledge directly into your cortex. And Hamilton uses that in um, some of his work, and it's it's a pretty well developed trope in in modern sci-fi. And I love it. I, I love it as an idea because who wouldn't? But the thing that I wanted to do in in Cruel Stars was completely subvert it and and demonstrate what a um, what a terrible vulnerability it could be. Right. It reminds me of the way you know if people have like smart anything in their home. Mm. You know, if if malware did get into it, you know, they couldn't make their toast anymore, let alone bank anymore or do, you know, from the mundane to the serious things. No, that's right. We, we really are quite vulnerable to uh, subversion of these systems. I, I don't think I did a book earlier this year. It was, um, it was an audio book, an audio exclusive. And I was basically looking at cyber attacks. It, it was set in the present day. It wasn't far future sci-fi or anything, but it was based on a sort of quite interesting factoid I discovered about America's um, food distribution system, which is that something like 90% of the nutrients that arrive on the table in the US are distributed by nine companies. And of that 90%, I think 85% are distributed by three companies. And it, it all comes out of about 115 warehouses. So if you can attack the information systems controlling those warehouses and collapse them, you suddenly cut off the food supply to 90% of the the US population. And which, you know, is bad, but it's worse than it seems because nowadays the way that most retailers run is with just-in-time principles so that if you go into a supermarket and you look at what's on the shelf three or four days down the track, everything is turned over because everything that arrives in that store arrives just in time. And that vulnerability, which I'm sorry, I'm, you know, I'm talking about another book I'd written, but that, that vulnerability also informed the architecture of, of the cruel stars. Because I was asking myself the same question, you know, how do you collapse a vast and, and massively powerful society? You just got to hit it at the right spot. It underscores the importance of people learning skills for themselves. And it's really those are the people who emerge as the 
survivors after mm. that decapitation strike. I mean, you have Commander Lucinda Hardy, for instance, well, who becomes by default the commander of the only surviving warship. Defiant, yeah. And she is skilled at hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, that's right. There's, um, I've been working on a, uh, like a little prequel, which I'm probably just going to give away for free, which is Lucinda's... Um, origin story and you know part of the reason she has those skills uh, it's hinted at in the book which is that she's effectively an orphan because her father was sent to a prison colony for debt crime uh, she was put into an orphanage where she had to learn to fight and because this is an orphanage and they're all poor kids none of them have implants or biomods or anything so that you know the, the fighting they did was for real and so she grew up quite comfortable and, and familiar with with physical conflict and and one of the things that she did to blow off steam was train herself and also the military in which she is a member the armadalen military um is very old-fashioned in that it, it, it organically trains its people in their their skill sets and let's talk about another character booker mm. who at the outset of the story, he's about to be executed. Deleted, yeah. Deleted, yes. So let's talk about him because he has a different point of view, I think, about what it means to be human, different than, say, the Armadalen or the corp- corporate side of things yeah. or the Sturm side of things. Yeah, Booker Well, Booker is, um, a, you know, a lot of people within the context of this book would not consider Booker to be human. They'd consider him to be a, a piece of software when we meet him, he you know he looks like a human, and he's sitting on death row, waiting to be executed for treason to the human volume. The reason is because he has joined a religion called the Source Code, and the the Source Code is this belief system that sprung up among, well, you know, I think of them as people who have basically been grown in vats and then their personalities have been generated by massive AIs and injected into the um, corporeal substrate of these clones. They're effectively clone soldiers. And Earth in particular is uh, a, a huge user of them. And so what it tends to do is generates a piece of source code, which each one is, you know, sort of randomly tweaked to be, you know, its own individual. And then that code can be dropped into this body over here or that piece of equipment over there. And what it allows Earth to do is to dispatch forces all the way around the volume at the speed of light. And because they don't have to actually send the meat sacks that they're in, they just drop them into meat sacks at the the other end and it's caused or it's given rise to as you might imagine an awful lot of uh, discrimination against the the sentient beings which come into existence like uh, in this fashion and then those those beings themselves have have pushed back and created their own culture and you know their own their own origin story and explanation for their existence. And when we we meet Booker, um, he is you know, he's about to be deleted. Uh, his body will be burned and his his source code um, negated because he has committed an act of treason by by joining up with the the source coders. His manner of existing becomes very convenient in fighting the Sturm because he can be transferred from 
one thing to another from a huge mechanized, almost transformer-like creature into something as seemingly small and potentially harmless as a hedge trimmer. That's right, yeah. And anything that can... Uh Anything that can take sentient software, uh, what we might think of as, as AI, can take source code. And every piece of source code thinks of itself as an individual. So uh, Booker's full name is, I think it's uh, um, Booker 30101628830. And uh, yeah, he very much thinks of himself as an individual. And, you know, his his arc, if you like, through the book is a bit like the, the Tin Man. Uh, he has to to prove more to himself than to, to anybody else that he does have a, a human soul. It's It was interesting for, for me to write this because I don't normally write a lot about faith or religion. It's not something I'm, I'm comfortable with, but... Um, I, I I found him a a really interesting character to to grapple with those um those questions and to go back to your early question about research before I I, I wrote the Booker arc I actually spent a a couple of months just um, reading up on on existential and and phenomenological uh, philosophy and he has a lot of those debates within himself and there'll be more of it as the, the series goes on. You alluded to earlier when you talked about the Sturm being essentially Nazi equivalents that the human side or the human volume, the the rest of human space, is not necessarily perfect. No. For instance, one of your main characters, and you have five main characters, Admiral McLennan, yeah. he is considered a legendary hero on the human side, but he's considered a war criminal to the Sturm because he was responsible for so many people's deaths. Mm. And I just thought it was interesting that here is this legendary hero, but he is not untarnished. And in fact, part of the reason that we, when we first meet McLennan, he's pretty much exiled himself to the, like the farthest reaches of uh, the human volume is that he's like six or 700 years after he did what he did and it, it, you know, it's a pretty big spoiler, so I won't give it away. He is still racked with guilt over it. And so his particular journey is to to come to terms with that guilt and, and decide whether or not, you know, he, he can effectively go on. Because going on in the context of this book means returning to his history as a mass killer. You've got five main characters whose stories you follow with, I would say, equal detail and passion. So I wondered if you have a favorite or do you strive to like all your main characters like a, like a good parent should with his children, although I think sometimes that's hard for parents to do. Uh, look, you know, it is a little hard sometimes. I, I do have favorites. I When I was uh, initially thinking of the... Um, like plotting out the series and, and figuring out the, the directions I would take it in. I, I very much thought of it as Lucinda's story. Um, and it's telling, I guess, that, you know, as I'm sort of filling in a little time at the moment and, and going back to do a, a sort of prequel ebook for my um, my favourite fans and readers, um, which is really, honestly, I think I'll just give it away. Uh, it's hers is the, the story that I, I want to investigate most of all 
but having said that, you know, she's she's such a stick in the mud. She, out of all the characters, she's the one with the biggest pole up her ass, and um, so she's not necessarily enormous fun to write. She's fascinating because she's this incredibly strong character who is racked with with you know doubts about her abilities to, or, or even her um. Uh, she's got imposter syndrome, basically. You know, she's a, a kid who grew up in North Ridge. She grew up poor and she finds herself sort of moving through, you know, very rarefied and and, and, and powerful centres of society. And she just, I think very early on, one of the, you know, one of the other characters tells her, you don't belong here. And, you know, the, the thing that she has to come to terms with over the, the course of her story is whether or not she does. So it, it is her story in a sense, but having said that, McLennan is much more fun to write and probably uh, Safina, the pirate, uh, because they're both in their own way, they're villains. They're, they're villains who, through circumstance, are forced to do the right thing and that's always a much more interesting character to write. I've always wondered when there are a lot of important characters in a story, how an author does it. So in your case, do you write their stories one at a time? Because their chapters alternate from their various points of view. So do you just go mm -hmm. through and write it all out? Or do you jump back and forth as you're writing just in the same way that the narrative is ultimately composed? Uh, that, is, that is a very touchy question at the moment, Rob, because I'm, I'm in another book right now and it has, again, multiple story arcs and I have done just that. I have sat down and written one arc and then another and then a third arc and to tell you the truth, I wish I hadn't. I, I wish I had done what I did with Cruel Stars, which was just I knew my five characters, I knew them from the get-go and I just jumped from one to the next to the next and then, you know, back to the the first one and and in that way i sort of got a sense of the entire story moving forward like a a big narrative wave i think my experience of having you know sort of grinding my way through this other book has, has been that if you just write one arc entirely from from a to z and then you go back and and effectively just start the book all over again you it's a trap. You you set yourself up for when you start a book. It takes an enormous amount of effort just to get the thing moving, and so if you are writing an individual arc from like you're basically completing that arc before you go back and do the other ones, then effectively you're starting the book again and again and again, and and every time you do you have to put the same amount of energy into getting the carousel and turning again. So with Cruel Stars, no, I, I, I knew my characters. I wrote biographies for each of them and I, I knew how I wanted all of their threads to come together at the end. So I did do a fair amount of, of plotting out, but having done that plotting, I then, you know, wrote, Chapter one, Lucinda. Chapter two, Fraser. Chapter three, Sophia, or whatever. And I'm I'm glad I did because I, I think it allowed me to construct a, a much more tightly plotted and, and coherent narrative. So you know, tip for anyone writing at home: you got a multi-threaded arc, write them all together. 
Interesting that after 31 books, you're still experimenting with how to put a story together and still still learning. It's it's a yeah. positive message, I think, that we never stop learning. No, you, you really don't. I, I learned something new with each book, and um, I learned quite a lot with, with Cruel Stars, and I'm really looking forward to going back and, and doing the next one. And yet having said that, uh, you know, I, I then moved on to another book and just stepped into it. Like really, you know, dug myself into a hole very quickly. I read in one of your blog posts that you dictate your books using transcription software. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how that works. And is it, does that mean it's spontaneous when you're dictating or do you try to reason out or plan beforehand? some at least of what you're going to say um yeah look it's I, again i've i've uh, i'm constantly refining that technique but i i took up dictation software about 10 years ago when i needed to get a deadline sorted out i needed to get a book in and uh, unfortunately i'd broken my arm and i rang my editor and i'm sort of panic mate what am i going to do and he suggested that i try i think it was called dragon dictate in those days um and look you, yeah the, the software got better but at the time with my arm in a sling and it was my writing arm too uh it to me it looked science fiction brilliant i just i talked at the computer and the you know the words came up and look to be honest my typing's not that fast and not that accurate and uh even primitive dictation software was probably better than than me banging away at the keyboard. Um, over the years, well, you know, even though my arm healed, I found that I was just a lot quicker talking to the computer than I was typing on a, a keyboard. And now, having said that, that was a skill I had to work pretty hard to acquire, and. You know, the reason I had to work hard was because I'd broken my arm and I had a massive deadline coming at me like a you know, black tsunami of fate. Um, I don't know that I would recommend it to anybody else unless they were willing to put in two or three months of, you know, pretty pretty hard work acquiring the – almost rewiring it. I, I, I have a psych degree way, way back in my, my past and I, I – I, I do think that you draw from different language centers of the brain when you're dictating as opposed to when you, you're writing. But having said all that, just recently, like within the past two or three months, have rejigged the way that I do dictation. So what I used to do was just, you know, have a look at, I'm going to write this chapter about Lucinda getting on the ship. And so I then put myself in the headset. I stand in front of the computer because I, I use a standing desk and I you know, start talking. One of the tweaks, the, the 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 tweaks I've just recently made in the past month or so, is one of the tricks of writing is to know what you're going to write before you write it. And so I will actually sort of work out what's happening in a chapter and give myself just a sort of one line summary of each paragraph. And once I've written that summary out for a you know, two three thousand word chapter, that might run to twenty or thirty sort of single dot point lines and then with those sort of pinned to the edge of the computer I find that I can just talk much much more naturally and in a, a much more relaxed fashion uh, and I, I don't get messed up about the fact that you know I look like this freak standing with a headset in front of a computer talking to himself. 
So tell me a little bit more about these devoted fans of yours and what you're writing for them. I have a little book club that I, I run and people can sign up to it and they, they get a free book. But one of the things I wanted to do for them with this series was basically give a, a bit more detail about Lucinda and uh, Safina's background. And so I've been working on a, an ebook with a friend of mine, uh, Jason Lambright. He's, um, he's an ex-US soldier, actually. He did a, a couple of tours overseas. And when he came back, um, he decided he wanted to be a sci-fi writer. And I, I read some of his books and I really liked him. So I sort of reached out and said, well, you know, we should do a bit of work together. And so uh, we're putting together a book called The, the Javan War. And um, it is effectively Lucinda's origin story. And I think I'm just going to give it away. Like I've got other books in the Cruel Star series that I, you know, have to write commercially and they have to, you know, be published by Del Rey in the US and, and Hedda's Use everywhere else. But with this one, I think I'm just going to do it for my readers. I'm just uh, just a little story of, of, you know, how this girl grew into the most kick-ass Armadale naval captain ever. Well, that sounds great and something for readers to look forward to. But first, I would say if they aren't familiar with who Commander Lucinda Hardy is, they need to read The Cruel Stars. So everyone go out and get your, get your copy. Thanks, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really been a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks, Rob. I'll get myself off to bed. My guest is John Birmingham, and we've been talking about The Cruel Stars, which came out in the U.S., from Del Rey in August. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of New Books and Science Fiction. Please subscribe to the show if you don't already, and definitely consider leaving a review. It helps other people find the show. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. I'm grateful to the editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network, that would be Marshall Poe, and to our editor, Leanne Wilson, for their support and their hard work doing an amazing job keeping the network up and running. And I'm Rob Wolf. I'm the author of The Alternate Universe. Find out more about me at robwolf.net and on Twitter at robwolfbooks. Keep reading, be nice to yourself and others, and crack a smile once in a while. And until next time.